Six goals in eight appearances before today. Adam Rooney with a chance to win the cup for Aberdeen. Welcome to the Here We Go podcast. On the day after Aberdeen's longest serving manager since Sir Alex Ferguson left the club, and on the evening that Celtic Football Club PLC went full Celtic dial on us. Um, on this week's show, there's obviously only one topic of discussion as the club finds itself at a place that used to be very familiar territory prior to 2013, looking for a new manager. Now, later, on, later on in the show, you'll hear from Derek Ray on Club Structures, Speak to Atlanta journalist and uh, Atlanta United commentator Jason Longshore on what Stephen Glass has been getting up to. Hey, purely coincidental, of course. While joining myself and Martin to talk over the last few days are two voices uh, you can hear across other podcasts. Moonlighting from his main gig on the NFL Scotland podcast, we've got Cameron Hobbs. How are you, Cameron? Yeah, I'm good. Uh, Still trying to come to terms with it all but hopefully going to add some insight that's worth ignoring completely from the offset. <laughs> Everyone's sticking their own little bubbles on social media. <laughs> what we say, frankly, doesn't matter. Um, and here's someone who will be enjoying the new uh, the rare sensation of giving his views and adorns in a podcast that Aberdeen fans actually listen to. It's uh, <laughs> journalist Ben Palmer. Ben, how's it been uh, being the mainstream media's de facto guy in the North East this week? <laughs> it's, um, it's been a, a rather manic, hectic, um, crazy 24 hours, to, <laughs> to be quite frank. But, but thanks for having me on tonight. Great to have you back, Ben. Um, always enjoyable. So, uh, on to the first question. The obvious question. No apologies for asking it. And one for you, Cameron. Do you think it was ultimately the right move? So, I'm going to start with the gambit of right move, not necessarily the right time. I think that's the bit for me that is the question mark. I think that's the bit for me that is going to be the talking point. It feels like the writing's been on the wall for a while. I think that there's been a very audible part to the Aberdeen fan base that's wanted rid of McInnes for a long time. I think that that has only grown, uh, especially this season, with combination of things but let's be honest lacklustre performances and uh, you know a record breaking run of no goals has been somewhat dire and, and I think that the writing's been on the wall and I guess perhaps he's been given longer this season in particular given the backdrop of Covid, given the backdrop of the lack of income coming into the club given the fact that he's on by all reports a substantial contract that's going to require some amount of money to pay off I you know, listen to your debrief last night, and I think that there was a feel there that, for both of you, that maybe you thought you'd see to the end of the season, and that's where I was sitting. 
I thought, do you know what? Let him see out to the end of the season. Let's see if he can get us another European place this season. There's a bit of continuity there. Even though things aren't working, at least he knows the players. He can try and galvanise them again um, and give them that. But obviously, something's happened in the background or that nil-nil draw with Hamilton was the, the straw that broke the camel's back. And ultimately, it's come to a head and he's gone. So I think that it was going to happen. I thought it was going to happen in the summer. So on that basis, right decision. Timing... I think is the question mark and a lot will be picked apart over that in the coming months largely depending on what happens here on in well of course there's always going to be the danger of looking at this to the success or failure of the next guy I mean it's what happened with uh, Jimmy Caldwell's departure it's kind of what happened after Alex Smith left as, as well you know contentious departures for certainly a a remaining section of the Aberdeen fan base, and we can't deny that, are, are going to be fearful of what happens next based on the fact that the next guy might fail. And the next guy might very well fail. We've spoken about this before, Martin, because uh, it's a fairly high floor to fall through. Um, you know, when Derek McInnes came in, he had the ability to make the changes and move on with the side, knowing that there would be a lot more leeway than the next guy in the manager's seat at Aberdeen is going to get. With regards to this decision, Martin, I know we spoke last night and we did sort of question, you know, a couple of, a month ago, Dave Comat was saying give him to the end of the season and now he's gone. But how much longer could you realistically have given him with no cha- signs of anything changing? No. Again, we're only, we're only assuming this. I think that perhaps the idea would, would have been to give, he was going to be here till the end of the season. Um, you obviously you can go by what, you know, there's a lot of rumours and things flying around that, you know, the, the talk a month ago was, he was going to be leaving. Social media was alight with stories about how he's gone. Uh, much like how it was last night for about 45 minutes before the news broke. I kind of haven't, haven't, haven't calmed down and recovered from the shock last night. I, I don't suppose I would have been against, you know, if he, had he been given to the end of the season, because we're now, in a, we're now in a position where we'll have to try and find a new manager, or in a, you know, which I suppose the club, club are buying themselves time in the hope that uh, Barry Robson, Paul Sheeran and Neil Simpson can get us over the line, get us the third, get us somewhere in the Cups as well um, and keep us in that European place. When there's a, when there's a break for two weeks with no games um, I think he saw this as the opportunity to try and to try and just get this done, get a fresh start and now they have, they've got an important thing where we've got these three, the three, three guys are in charge and we've got to try and find a manager, no, ASAP. Yeah, Ben, what do you attribute the, the sort of vault fast from Dave Cormack over the past uh, four weeks to? Yeah, um, I mean, I think that's why it was so shocking yesterday was because just a month ago, Cormack had said that McInnes was a the man, they had faith that they were going to trust that, with all the credit in the bank, that he was the right man to turn it around. And, and clearly, his results... Have have continued along the same kind of path. The the football has been much of the same brand, and, and goals haven't been scored. Something's changed, um, which made it all the more shocking last night when when the news was was confirmed. I don't think the club quite wanted it to end the way it did yesterday. Um, I think that it, it wasn't going to be confirmed until today, um, and so that he could get a chance to really speak to the players and say his goodbyes in the way. He wanted to, but obviously the, the news broke last night, and 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 that's it over. I, I, I suppose. Yeah, um, some quite 
damning stuff coming out in Sportsender tonight where Ian McCall, frankly, was the best guest on the show, which, um, well, I think that says uh, quite a bit about, uh, about the standard of the conversation. But uh, obviously Ian's clearly spoken to Derek McInnes and, you know, what came out from that was that the plan was to announce it at lunchtime today. That got leaked. That initially Derek McInnes knew he was leaving in the summer. Um, now, when he found that out, we don't know whether that, you know, was a decision that he was on board with. And I very much doubt that, quite frankly. All in all, it just smacks of something that's not been handled terribly well, Cameron. I mean, there's quite a few things playing into this, but um, given the prize that was an offer for finishing third, that we weren't more proactive in the transfer window was a bit of a surprise. Yeah, and I think the timing of it's interesting, and you know, there's a number of different ways we can cut this. I think let's let's address the first bit. If the club were wanting this to come out today at lunchtime, then obviously something got out yesterday. I believe there was a board meeting, so someone's leaking information from that board meeting. And I guess if you're Aberdeen, maybe one of the first things you want to do is try and stop that kind of stuff going on. We saw a very similar thing happening at Celtic a couple of years ago with transfer targets getting leaked and things like that. Now, Ben won't thank me for that because obviously the press, I'm sure, love all these little leaks. But, oh, that's my know. bread and butter. <laughs> well, you're going to have to starve, Ben. God damn it, you're going to have to starve. Um, but, but, you know, I guess if you're the club, you probably look at that and go like, you know, what can we do to stop that kind of stuff coming out? I think that Derek McInnes has done a, a huge amount at Aberdeen and whether or not you're a fan of him, whether or not you wanted him out the door, you have to respect what he's done at the club. Fine, only one trophy in that time, but he's taken the club from three ninths and an eighth to never finishing lower than fourth to only one season not making it as far as a semi-final in one of the cups. You know, um, in Europe, for the last six years in a row, it's been much, much better compared to the years before it. Uh, and I think because of that, he certainly, for me, would have deserved to see to the end of the season. Um, and I think that that's probably the biggest thing that, that resonates with me. Obviously, things have come to a head. We know that Cormac's much closer to the fans, and the fan opinion matters to him, probably, I think, more than it did to Stuart Milne. And I wonder how much of it that played out in this, and I wonder how much that will play out in what happens with the club and who the next manager is going forward. His persona has been that of a populist, basically, hasn't it? Um, Cormac, that is. And with that, with the sort of leaks that are coming out of the, the boardroom, there was also that briefing prior to the Hibs game, that that game was make or break. I mean, whatever the intentions of this briefing were, Ben, um, whether it was just a nod to the fans at the board were aware of what they were saying, and that went a bit too, went a bit over the top, or if it was ultimately a decision they chickened out with, it just doesn't look good. No, you're right. I mean, and, and there's been whispers all season around the club that this is what we're doing, this is what a chairman went to do. And I mean, it was probably unfair on, on Derek McInnes in some regards, and, and that this, especially ahead of the Hibs game, because we're going into that game, the pressure was huge already. And then there was a story in the BBC that if he loses the game, He's out of a job now. Of course, that didn't transpire, and and by he's left a month later. But it, it, it put an unnecessary amount of pressure on the players. But th- this was the sort of this had, according to many, come out the club and, and been briefed to the BBC. So that was unfair. And I, I suppose the way that his his um, departure kind of came out last night as well was probably unfair as well. I mean, 
what I think has been quite telling over the last 24 hours is that a lot of people on, on social media over the last wee while have, have wanted Derek McInnes out and it's like, get Derek McInnes out, we need a new manager. But then all, over the last 24 hours, everybody's kind of been thanking him and thinking, well, he, he's done a great job. But uh, this, uh, the rhetoric's been a lot more polite than it has been recently um, and, and folk are kind of recognising that the job he did was good, but however, it had just kind of came to a, to a natural end. But the... <laughs> Some people are almost misty-eyed and thinking, oh, these were great years, but we'll, we'll, he's putting us in a, in a great place to sort of kick on from now. Surely that's just your typical um, bipolarity of your football fan, though, Ben. Things are either fantastic or they're terrible. Oh, aye. Aye, of course. It always is. For me as well, I think that's a symptom of the fact that it's the, the voice that you hear is the one that's got something to say. So I think that at the point where McInnes is in situation and you've got people like what we're all sitting saying here, we would have let him see it out for the season. I'm not replying to every single tweet that Aberdeen send out saying, McInnes must go, what the hell's happening? You know, that's the content that you see because that's the voice that's got something that it wants to happen right now. It's then at the point where McInnes is gone, those people who feel like they feel they need to give him their respect then start to pipe up because they've got something that they need to contribute. Um, and therefore, I think that that's unfortunately always the way that, that these things go. Um, for me, I thought, though, that the vocal part of some of the Aberdeen support, and I have to be careful here, but some of it's, you know, far too over the top. Um, for me as well, I thought the fact that Aberdeen posted out a tweet to say that they were saddened to hear about the passing of former BBC Scotland commentator Alistair Alexander, which is very sad. A famous voice that many of us grew up with and, and absolutely recognise. And you've got, and I won't name the people, but some of the comments are directly after that tweet. What about RIP, current management team? Um, this isn't the sacking of McWinless. Um, and, and, and stuff like that, like, that was a, a, a nasty element to the, to the support that, for me, I think is a really bad look and not one that I want to see from the Aberdeen support. Um, fine, we know that a large amount of the fans wanted McInnes gone, and that's fine. And sure enough, those ones are quiet. And I think, to your point, Ben, I'm not sure it's the same people that were vocal at wanting them gone that are now being respectful. I think that's the other Aberdeen fans that have been quietly getting on with it, knowing that things aren't going great, but not necessarily wanting the manager's head, are now stepping forward and saying, listen, Derek, we thank you for what you did. It may not have been perfect. It may well have been the right time to go. Things have gone stale, but thank you, and we want you to leave with that. Yeah, but of course, there's an element that both things can be true, that he did a solid job, he did a good job, but it was also time for him to move on. With regards to the social media stuff, there's the danger of obviously taking that too seriously. But, yeah, of course, it's not pleasant to witness. My main gripe with it is it's never funny. It's never, it's, it tries to be funny, it's never funny. It wouldn't be so bad if it was. I spoke about this last night, Martin, before the announcement was made, obviously we, we recorded our podcast and we were kind of saying it's a roll of dice with regards to this season because surely you're not going to write off the possibility of actually finishing third. If we do, it'll be little to do with us and more to do with Hib's comic inability to actually string some results together. However, we thought it represented a roll of the dice. It doesn't look like that's going to be the case with the fact that uh, Paul Sheeran's taking charge. Yeah, it'll be more of the same, really. I mean, Paul, no, there's three guys there who were part of the wider backroom team. There's, there's probably not going to be much of a change. I mean, I, no, I'm not going to pretend that I 
you know, I know the ins and outs of how Paul Sheeran prefers to set up set up his his, his favorite formations. But I would I would hazard a guess that it'll probably be fairly similar as it was. I mean, nothing's going to change in terms of the personnel on the pitch, so that's going to that's going to have to continue. It's not necessarily a huge roll of the dice. I think the idea idea comes with the roll of dice is because it's the gamble of getting rid of the manager. You know what that does to the players and what that does to the morale around the playing squad. I say again, it's really important that we've spoken so many times about you know, the, the benefits of of getting you no know, European football this season and the money that'll bring. Guaranteed group stage European football. Uh, and obviously we've still got the Scottish Cup to play for as well so I don't think it's you know, it is a roll of the dice but I think not in the way that I think a lot of people are thinking that you know we're just going to you know we're throwing these guys in there with no and it's not like Barry Robson and Paul Sheeran have no experience you know they're you know they've got they've got coach experience Paul Sheeran you know, has been obviously you know, working behind the scenes for quite a while now as well um, but it, 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 I wouldn't I don't want to say it'll be business as usual because it obviously won't but I would be very surprised to see much change in terms of how the play, how the, the team plays. It just all adds up, doesn't it, Cameron? In terms of you know sacking them at this point without announcing a new manager within the next twenty four hours, you know, without having your your guy and structure in place that you were going to pivot to, it just all adds up to a very confused last six weeks in the Aberdeen boardroom. I would say. Yeah, and it's a gamble on the pitch as well as off it. First of all, let's just say, you know, Paul Sheeran's won. Paul Sheeran won the third division war both before the Rangers ever won it. So, you know, it's not like he's not tasted success as the football manager. So let's bring some of that. Absolutely. Um, I think he won as many games as he lost as our both manager. So fine, whatever. You know, he, he was there a couple of years. He's, he's got some experience behind him. I think, though, the, the gamble's on the pitch because can these guys galvanise the squad now and do something different and get their heads up? If they can, brilliant. Should see us good enough to finish at least fourth in European football next season, you like to think, and a solid run in the Scottish Cup would be brilliant. Beyond that, it's also a gamble off the pitch because what this is is a, a move towards getting some of these vocal fans who were audibly saying, I will not buy my season ticket, coming back again. And in a way, this is done at a point early enough that hopefully some work can be laid to try and get the fans engaged in the process of appointing a new manager and get them buying the season tickets for next season, making sure that the income's returning in the maximum possible case. And, and for me, I guess that business decision is, is the cost of mutually terminating the contracts of Tony and Derek worth the significant uplift of season tickets that that Aberdeen anticipate to get on the back of this decision. I guess in this outcome, the fans that necessarily didn't want them to move on, I don't think will now not buy their season tickets. So what you're going to do is you will get some of those distant fans back into uh, the mindset of wanting to buy and get behind the team. That how, how long that lasts, I don't know. If the new management team doesn't do anything better, how quickly do they get turned on? And at what point and how significant a move did, we, did the club need to make over the summer to really galvanise some of the folk that have just had enough? Well, we, this is something we've spoken about on here before, Cameron, that I think there are, there are far greater issues with regards to next season's t- season ticket sales than the man that's in charge, quite frankly. I think the fact that people have either been to an economically difficult time due to lockdown, that people are simply out of the habit due to lockdown, that people might not have the guarantee that they're going to back, all get back into the stadium next season for the first part of the season at the very least. 
are going to be question marks over over next season season ticket sales before you even talk about who's actually in charge. But but no, un- unquestionably, it's um, it's a decision that's had to be a balance between you know the financial cost of doing it, whether there was going to be uptick in terms of performances, and your supporters because you have to try and ultimately please them. Uh, Dave Cormack's put in quite a lot of money to the club, but ultimately the ones pumping in eight nine million every year are us. Anyway, and one of the many question marks over any new appointment is whether the structure will change behind the scenes to accommodate a more continental approach. We spoke to German football connoisseur, if you will, and of course Don's fan, Derek Ray, to find out more about the role of a sporting director. Derek, thank you for joining us again. Obviously, we don't quite know yet how this is going to unfold in terms of the the structure of any new appointment at Aberdeen. But I think it's very likely, given the sort of soundings that come out of the club, given that football strategy document that they released 12 months ago, that I, I, I think it probably will move towards a sort of director of football and head coach structure. Now, you expanded on this a bit on uh, on social media this afternoon, Derek, but it's something which is obviously far more common in other countries. If you'd just like to expand on, on what it means and what some of the pros and cons of that sporting director, head coach structure are. Absolutely, Richard. Good to be with you, first of all. I do get asked this question a lot, and in fact, I often get asked it the other way around. I often get asked by people in Scotland, would ex-German coach be a good fit for ex-Scottish club? And my answer is always, well, no, unless you come at it from a different angle and you restructure the club along German lines. So it's a very good question, the one that you've raised. And it comes down to this. Every club in Germany has its sporting division headed up by a sporting director who is normally on the board or on the equivalent of the board, if you like. So it's an executive position. And then under that sporting director, you have a number of other positions. You have a squad planner, for example. You have somebody who looks after the youth program, but not the coaching of the youth, but the organizational elements of the youth system. You have a sort of a, a second-in-command sporting director who's not on the board. Think of it like a sporting manager, somebody who's who's managing that department but isn't answerable to the board members. And what happens really is that a club decides well in advance what it wants to be. You know, what is that club's DNA? What do they want to do well? What do they want to specialize in? You know, is it youth development and then knowing that every couple of years you sell on your assets and then you do it again with more young players coming through? That's actually the model that's very common in Germany and it's a sustainable model. It's been demonstrated to be that. Um, you think about stylistic matters. You know, do you want to be, uh, uh, a counter-pressing side? Do you want to be all about possession and playing that way? And if you are, then it's up to the sporting division to set that tone from top to bottom within the club so that the youth teams will play that way. And, you know, there's no point in having disjointed thinking. It's all very much joined up. So where does the coach come into that? Well, the coach comes into it 
as, if you like, the extended arm of the sporting division. So, again, it's completely the other way around. Uh, in British culture, we have a tendency to think there's something really appealing about a strong manager, you know, a big character who comes in and he, you know, imposes his personality on a club and he decides what's what, he decides what players he wants, you know, essentially he's moulding the club in his image. But the problem as German football would see that is that if things go the wrong way, then you're left with a lot of ill-fitting players because you've let this new manager loose without really thinking about style, without thinking about how he fits in with the rest of the club. And so then you are doing it all over again with a new manager. So... Um, Again, to, to think of it in German terms, the coach comes in, he is compatible with the sporting division, they see him as somebody they can work with based on his style and how he likes to play the game, uh, and the coach you know, might have a say in certain signings, but is not the one who is initiating that, that is all done by the sporting division. It's a long-winded answer, but I think it's the best way of explaining it. Do you think that the old-style British manager that you alluded to there, the, the one with the almost total autonomy at his club, do you think that that, that uh, is on its way out I mean the last enclave probably is the UK as, as far as uh, world football goes I think it should be on its way out but I think it's quite difficult I actually raised this subject on social media a few weeks ago with fans and, and sort of asked the question what is it about this strong character this uh, strong manager that you find appealing and the replies I got were along the lines of well think Steen, Busby, Ferguson go down the list. So people are kind of going down memory lane with that. They're thinking, well, you know, when we had success, it was with this strong manager. So why shouldn't we just rinse and repeat? But remember, the game has changed an awful lot since then. You know, back in the, the days of Steen or Busby or Ferguson, you didn't have specialization within clubs. You, you did have, certainly in the UK, you, you had one person who looked, looked after everything. But, I mean, how realistic is that even in modern life nowadays? How many of us work at places where there is this one um, all-powerful leader or manager who dictates every aspect of what's happening at our workplace to the employees? It doesn't happen, you know, and it wouldn't be an efficient uh, use of time or resources to have that happen. So I think it's, um, to answer your question, I, I think it should be on the way out, but it does take a long time for people to embrace new thinking. And I remember when I was working in Scotland, I remember Hart trying something that was not a replica of the German model, but it was going along that road with Craig Levine becoming the sporting director, if you like. And then Ian Cathro came in as the head coach, and I thought that he was... Um, you know, on a hiding to nothing because the media didn't take to him because I think people in my line of work quite like this strong manager type figure as well. It plays to their narratives too. You know, you can praise somebody to the hilt if he if his club does really well. You can criticize him to the hilt if things go wrong. So um, it doesn't you know fit in with a sort of a, a typical um, uh, you know in your face kind of Scottish or, or English narrative. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of different ways in which the director of football, sporting director role can work. Obviously, Aberdeen fans will remember that Willie Miller was director of football for a number of years. Jimmy Calderwood was his, was his appointment, Mark McGee, uh, somewhat less successfully after that. But um, he was probably you know, less hands-on with regards to signing structure, so the manager still had a degree of autonomy there. Is it a risk for a club of a, of a certain level? Do you think this works better at bigger clubs, this structure? 
But I think in England, for example, you do really have this structure already. You, you have had that at most of the big clubs in England. It's just not talked about as much. And again, it's a bit of a media thing that you like to, you know, people like to idolise Klopp. And it's, you know, Klopp's team and everything goes through Klopp at Liverpool and now with Tuchel um, at Chelsea. You know, so people talk in those terms. But there is a structure in place. And you do have people who are doing these jobs. The difference really in Germany is that the people who are, and I mentioned them earlier, these, these big sporting director, big beasts, if you like, who are on the board, they are the ones who are quoted day in, day out. In fact, if you go to a German press conference, this is quite interesting, if you go to a German press conference before a game, it's not just the coach who is generally on the podium, it's also the, the head of sport. The two of them are there together. And so if you want to ask a question about philosophy, about direction of the club, about signings, then that goes to the sporting director. That doesn't go to the coach. He has very little input in that. I mean, he might have some, but he's not the one who's ultimately pulling the trigger on a, on a deal or thinking down the line about, about transfer structures or things like that. And um, people say to me, yeah, well, you know, that maybe could work at a club like Celtic or, or maybe Rangers, but maybe everybody else in Scotland should just stick with, with one manager. But, um, you know, I've got news for you. If you go down the divisions in Germany, if you go into the second division, if you go into the third division, they've all got sporting directors, you know. So it, it is not just big clubs in Germany who do this. It is seen as the most efficient way to, to make a club work and to have continuity. And... Um, the one thing I would say is this doesn't mean that uh, clubs are any uh, more likely to hang on to a coach for the long haul. There are um, exceptions to that. You think of Christian Streich at Freiburg, who's been there now for uh, a decade and might be there for another decade. But again, that is the exception. Um, but what it comes down to is that there is continuity from a philosophical point of view. I know people hate hearing philosophy, you know, uh, attached to, to football. People say, well, it's not philosophy, it's football. But, you know, I'm using that word as a sort of a catch-all for way of thinking, way of believing, DNA, style, what you want to be. And that is something that shouldn't really, when you think about it, change from week to week. That should be something that's ingrained. And if you have that, if you have that as your building block, then it stands to reason that with a, a well-thought-out plan, you can have more success. Seems a bit uh, counterintuitive to talk about names right now, given that, uh, you know, we don't know what structure we're going to have going forward. But a name that has come up that is obviously well known to um, people who follow the English leagues as well, um, and most recently was it Schalke. Um, if you can just speak, Derek, David Wagner is a name that's come up. Do you think that's realistic? And if so, what would he bring to the table? I'm not honestly sure how realistic it is. I heard him interviewed recently on one of the Sunday morning talk shows in Germany. It's a bit of an institution, this program, Doppelpass, which goes out live every Sunday. And they have, you know, the good and the great of, of German football as guests from time to time. And he was one of the, the live guests. And he definitely wants to get back into football. Um, but I think England is really where he would like to. Um, get back to having been in charge of Huddersfield and I think we all understand that there is a big difference in terms of resources between a Huddersfield and an Aberdeen that's not fair you know it's not at all fair but that is the reality so um, again that name has come up with with fans but again you know he's somebody who um, again, at Schalke was working under a sporting team. Now, that's not the best example because Schalke have been in chaos for quite some time. They started very well under him, but then went completely the other way. I'm not sure it's actually 
mostly his fault. I, I think he inherited circumstances there, an example of a sporting team that did not do its um, due diligence in terms of uh, covering all bases, in terms of having the squad planning uh, down to a fine art. I think that that was one way not to do it. And um, also, even before um, Wagner was there and before um, Jochen Schneider, who was the sporting director until a few days ago, uh, really before him as well, the problems go back to. But um, I'm not sure that, that somebody like Wagner would be attainable because I think he would probably be of a mind to sit back and wait. Um, he was getting paid by Schalke until very recently. So there's no financial pressure for somebody like that. And eventually there will probably be a German team who will say, yeah, you know, there's enough there. We saw enough in terms of the body of work that we would give him another chance or maybe even in England as well. So I don't really think he's somebody who would want to rush back in um, and into the unknown. That's just my opinion, my honest opinion. No, and I think that's, that probably um, makes sense. There has obviously been other teams in England who have attempted to almost echo the success that Wagner's had and indeed that uh, Norwich have had with uh, um, Daniel Farke as well. A number of clubs have, have gone to either, um, I think, uh, BVD, BVB2 was where Farke was, if I remember correctly, or maybe that was Wagner actually. Teams have done their due diligence. They're not going to top flight German teams. They're maybe going to backroom staff and they're looking to ape the German model. It's clearly reaching out across the rest of Europe, slowly but surely. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. And you know, I go back to my first answer. I think if, if Aberdeen, for example, were serious about it, then they wouldn't be talking about the coach first. You know, they'd be talking about the coach last. And I know, again, that's totally at odds with how fans think. You know, they want a quick fix. They want somebody to come in and be that figurehead. And this is why I still have doubts as to whether the model uh, is one that, that is going to properly work in Scotland uh, if people are not going to embrace it. And I know it's not as sexy to bring in a sporting director. I know people think, well, you know, who's that? And there's a tendency in our culture to think about the sporting director as somebody who, you know, maybe uh, comes in last and is sort of um, an accessory piece, is almost somebody who reflects the coach's thinking. So, um, you know, it, 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 if you were of a mind to get somebody who uh, has credibility in the German world, I think you would have to, to get the sporting team in first. I think you're probably looking at coaches who, you know, have worked in the second division, which is a good standard. I've often said the German second division is pretty comparable with with the the top flight in Scotland. I, I think that is, you know, probably a fair comparison in terms of of level. Um, and you'd be looking at coaches there. You mentioned Dortmund's second team, Daniel Farke. Um, Wagner was there as well, as you, as you said in your and your question. So I think it's um, it's being flexible. It's it's looking for the right person. But again, to me, it has to start with the the sporting team. That, that's what I would be doing. For, that'd be, that's what I'd be doing first and foremost. I'd be talking to German sporting directors. How exactly do you set up your sporting structure? That would be the first question I'd be asking. And if uh, if anybody at the club wants a suggestion for for somebody or or people to talk to, then uh, they know where to find me. <laughs> well, quite this. They've definitely got your number. Um, anyway, Derek, thank you very much for that. Very illuminating. Uh, and thanks for joining us again. Anytime, Richard. Thank you. Ben, I find that quite illuminating. Um, it wasn't so much that I wasn't aware of how the split worked. It was more that, um, you know, we do seem in this country to be very late adopters to that sort of setup. 
Aye, um, and I found a quite interesting story uh, this morning. It was in the Daily Mail um, that Stephen Glass, and I mean, he is the the he he sort of emerged as a front runner um, at the minute to to replace McInnes, uh, McInnes, rightly or wrongly. But there was a story in the Daily Mail this morning that suggested that perhaps Stephen Glass. Um, would be brought in as a, as a sporting director to the to the club, which I, which I find quite surprising because as much as you've heard talk about Celtic ripping up their structure and and changing how they do things in the summer, it, that's not really been mentioned at all in, in the Aberdeen debate. Um, does a club of Aberdeen size need a sporting director? I mean, obviously it's the way the modern game is is going, but it just seems perhaps like another level of bureaucracy if. if if we're being frank about it, um, but it's just one of those questions that every club has to offer now, uh, has to ask now. Sorry, is is do we need to change our structure? Do we need to go the sporting director um, route? So I mean, it's, it's something the club have to ponder over the next six weeks, if or the, the last six games of the season, if they are to give um, the interim management team and, until the end of the campaign. Do, do we stick with? the management structure that we've got in place, or do we have an o- overhaul? But not only is it an overhaul, it's 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 another it's another wage you've got to pay. Finances come into it as well, and can the club afford it? I mean, Cormac has spoken enough about how much the the pandemic um, has hit the club. There will be a severance package with McInnes and Doherty. So the, the club have a lot of questions to, to ask in that regard. I don't think it's quite as simple as, do, do we follow the... Follow the way the rest of Europe is going, and and appoint a sporting director. Well, it's interesting. I actually brought up that point about the level of the club, whether it only truly applied at the top level. And um, I know you didn't hear the the conversation, Ben, but uh, Derek explained that if it's right through the leagues in, in Germany, that that is the structure that's set up, regardless of the size of club. That. Um, there's someone who's basically looking after the football philosophy, overseeing transfers. And I suppose from our point of view, you talk about the potential of it being a new wage. Well, you've currently got like a Russ Richardson in place who is operating as your, I don't know what his title is, but he, he will be part of Derek McInnes' backroom staff as his head of recruitment or whatever his, his role is. And I suppose it would be taking aspects of that job and aspects of maybe Stephen Gunn's current role and it would just be a, more of a reorganisation as opposed to an additional wage, perhaps. But it, you know, it depends whether this is up for debate, whether it's in play. It's obviously a structure that's employed by Atlanta, and we all know that Dave Cormack very much likes d- their way of doing things, uh, to to say the least. Interesting that you should mention Stephen Glass for the sporting director role because that's not, you know, I would have thought him given that he's currently coaching, more likely to fit in on the coaching side. What about yourself, Martin? Um, this whole idea of the, the old-fashioned British manager with full autonomy against the sporting director, which do you prefer? Well, I think the sporting director thing is quite interesting because if, we're going to go, if we do go down that route, then you would imagine that they would want to bring in the sporting director first. He would surely have some sort of say as who comes in, who comes in as the manager. I mean, I think it really depends on the options that are available as well, because you know you're looking, you're now looking for two, you know, two prime candidates as opposed to as opposed to just a manager and bringing in you know whoever. The, the mention I did read a little bit of the the article that Ben was talking about, where Stephen Glass was mentioned for that as well, and I'm not really 
Now, I'm not sure that, that I thought that was a bit a bit of a strange one because, yeah, surely he wants to be one of these guys on the training pitch managing the team. Um, and I would I would have put, I would have had him down as being a coach to be honest, like rather than a sporting director. So I did think that was a bit strange. I think it would be something. I think the sporting director thing would be a, would be the way to go purely because I think it gives you the consistency and it gives you the able, ability for forward planning. So if your if your manager wants to move on, if you've got the sporting director there, you've got somebody who is able to carry on the work that's been put in place. Um, but yeah, I mean that comes with the whole idea of like you say, you know, um, it is an extra wage, but there's a there's a whole football you know, football operations department there already. Um, so perhaps you know one of those guys, whether it's Russ Richardson or Stephen Gunn or whoever, you know, would be would be either in that role or they would be assistant. I do think that they will go they would go down the route of having a sporting director, and that will come in because, as you mentioned, it's you no. Know, it's what they do at Atlanta, and I think we're going to we're going to see as the as the time passes on that we're going to be adopting more and more of the framework that they have around their club. Just can I just interject very quickly, and I'm sure we'll get to Stephen Glass, but it's just just on what type of role he he might take, if any. Um, and I, I went back looking through clippings today of when he was appointed the. Interim manager at Atlanta United, and he spoke to a handful of Scottish journalists on Zoom, and he was asked about managing um, in, a, in in the UK, and he said, "I wouldn't rule it out." And but I think in terms of sporting director, the bit that's that's maybe pertinent is the way I approached my playing career is I did the best I could, and from there I saw what happened. So he seems from speaking to him and from um, and, and certainly that answer, it seems to be that he's kind of open open to, to anything, he also said I would stay here for the right job at the right time and it, so I mean, it's not like he's saying I, I would definitely want to be a manager he, he, he seems quite open in, in what he wants his career to become Well, that seems like a useful point in the conversation to uh, bring in my discussion with Jason Longshore uh, Jason is a journalist at Atlanta and he's also the commentator for the Atlanta United Games, so he's very well placed to talk to us about what Stephen Glass has been up to over the past couple of years. Jason, thanks for joining us again. It's uh, It's been a while since we last spoke to you, obviously at the outset of the, I was going to say merger there, but it's not quite right, uh, Between since the partnership was announced between Atlanta and Aberdeen. So we're speaking to you tonight because um, Stephen Glass, obviously a former Dons player, now manager at Atlanta United 2, the reserve team essentially at Atlanta, is um, the favourite to replace Derek McInnes as Aberdeen boss. So really just wanted to speak to you, Jason, to get an idea of basically how's he been doing? Yeah, it's an interesting job that Stephen Glass has with Atlanta United 2. And I know people, because it happens here in Atlanta as well, I know people who maybe don't understand the structure, look at the results and say, oh, well, that's not going well. But the job isn't to win matches necessarily. The the job is to develop players for the first team. And Atlanta United has taken that player development model very, very seriously uh, from its, its early stages. Atlanta United 2 started in the second year of the club in 2018 and Stephen Glass took over in 2019 after spending a year with the academy at the U17 level and where he's been essential to the club is getting players both from the academy side accustomed to 
professional football and everything that entails. And also preparing players for first-team contracts. He's had multiple Atlanta United 2 players move up to earn Major League Soccer contracts. And he has been also essential in Atlanta's run in 2019 in the postseason where he was able to incorporate first-team players and keep them fresh and ready for the the potential to be needed. And there was a, a really key situation in our playoffs in 2019 where Mikey Ambrose, who was a reserve left back, had not seen the field much for the first team, requested to play with the second team and get games, and found some of the best form of his career to the point that in our quarter, our league quarterfinal, our, our conference semifinal uh, against the Philadelphia Union, Mikey Ambrose got the start and was essential in the win. It's, it's a unique kind of role. And, you know, I, I'm sure people are accustomed to the reserve team mentality. But here in the, the States with this, Steven's role is similar to a reserve coach in other parts of the world, but also similar to an academy manager in other parts of the world because he has to incorporate teenagers that are not on professional contracts with players who are signed straight to the reserve team also with players who are signed to Major League Soccer contracts who are getting games to either coming back from injury or to stay fresh. So it's a lot of juggling. And I think what Steven has excelled in during his time in Atlanta is the individual 1v1 relationships and preparing players for what's next for them, whether it is that, that pro deal, whether it's going back to the first team, or helping these young players get ready for what it's like to be a professional player. We've had an interesting discussion with Derek Ray on the show tonight about structure, club structure, because Aberdeen currently, and indeed quite endemic within Scottish football, have a manager who looks after the whole of the first team, essentially, and everyone feeds into him. He is He has great autonomy, and he is the leader, basically, within the football side of the club. Atlanta, it appears from the outside, employ a director of football and have an overarching strategy that's guided by him. Now, I want to know whether Atlanta employ a similar kind of style of play across all their teams so that the transition up to the top team is uh, is as seamless as it can be. What is that? And if there's any particular traits that Stephen brings to the table as a coach? They, they do. Um, it's something that I think has been really not talked about enough and and it's as you know at any club it's difficult to instill that consistent philosophy from your u12s u13s all the way through your first team you're going to have some variations obviously and and when you get into that first team and sometimes you have to to change some things tactically to get the results that are necessary it happens but the idea is that atlanta united has had from day one, and it comes from Carlos Bocanegra, who is the technical director and vice president of the club. Um, it came from Tata Martino, who's now the manager of the Mexican national team, who spent time at Barcelona, spent time with Argentina, won titles in South America. Frank DeBoer and his time here, you know, kind of wasn't as much of a departure as I think people thought because those two managers at the first team level, along with Carlos and along with Gabriel Heinze, who is now taking over the first team, 
really subscribe to the positional play idea. So it's not exactly what Marcelo Bielsa is doing. It's not exactly what Pep Guardiola is doing. It's not exactly what somebody like Jorge Sampaioli is doing. But there's elements of that along with the classic Renus Mikkels, Johan Cruyff ideas of what positional play is. Atlanta has consistently said from academy all the way through the first team, they want to be on the front foot. They want to control games. They want to play in the other team's half. How they get there has varied a little bit. Tata Martino's teams had a little more of a, a pressing element to them than Frank DeBoer's teams did. I think that's going to really increase with Gabriel Heinze. Where Steven Glass has been, I think, essential is in that role of academy players taking that step up and having to do what they did at the academy level, but in front of fans and playing against grown men. So you've had, you know, 15, 16, 17-year-old players playing against teams like the Tampa Bay Rowdies in the American Second Division with 30, 31, 32-year-old full professionals who are trying to earn their win bonuses to, to put more money, you know, in the bank account. You know, it's a, it's a whole different mentality. And I think where, where Steven has been really good is expanding on what the players have learned in the academy and preparing them for the intensity that they'll face at the next level. He hasn't sacrificed the principles of play. He hasn't sacrificed the way this team wants to play and the way that he wants his players to play to chase results because that's not his job at the second team level. Um, I thought he did a really good job last year when he took over the first team as a caretaker manager from Frank DeBoer of getting the team back to playing on the front foot more. Now, it was incredibly difficult last year because of the, the challenges with COVID, the protocols that he was facing. I mean, he, he barely got to practice with the team, which is kind of difficult when you're trying to reinforce a principle of play and you're not able to really have training sessions. And none of it feels normal because of, of what we're all dealing with, with, with doing professional sports during COVID. But I thought he got the team playing more aggressively, with more intensity. Frank's teams were dropping deeper, faster to defend from a deeper position rather than defend up high. And I thought when Steven's teams were fully fit and at their best last season, they were playing closer to what that Atlanta mentality has been about being more aggressive and controlling games through pressure. It's it's a theory that, I mean, you know, we see managers around the world, like I mentioned Bielsa and Guardiola and, and Sampaoli and Cruyff and Mikkels, like they all have their own spins on it. And what would be fascinating for me to see is in a role, if Stephen was to get the job at Aberdeen, what he would do with his spins on those principles. He's done a great job of instilling the principles in the second team at Atlanta what would he do with the freedom to make his own changes? You know, would it be as a high intensity and as high pressure as some managers in this, this realm take it? Would it be more of a counter press? Would it be sitting deeper a little bit? Would it be a lower block? Those are the things that would be fascinating for me to see when he gets that opportunity. And I really do think he'll get an opportunity here soon. I think he's done a, a great job with the twos. I think he did a good job in a lot of adversity last year with the first team. 
but what it looks like when he gets to call those shots about the going from principles of play to individual tactics to win matches. I think you very clearly and concisely explained the, the unique circumstances, I suppose, of what, uh, being Atlanta two head coach as compared to the first team head coach. Um, that spells caretaker, though. Would he ever have been under serious consideration for the job longer term? I'm not sure, to be perfectly honest. Um, at the time, you know, I think it was said that, that he was, and I don't know how everything played out because as we found out uh, when Gabriel Heinze was hired that it was a, a fairly long courtship. Uh, Heinze had been out of work at Velez. He, he walked away at the end of the Argentine season, which ended the, the weekend before everything shut down with the, the pandemic. And he'd been linked to a couple of jobs, but it sounds like Atlanta made contact with him fairly early in the process after Frank DeBoer and the club parted ways. So while I think he had an opportunity to impress, and I think that if things had gone incredibly well and, and things had looked you know, like a, and he'd won MLS Cup, for example, then maybe we're having a different conversation. But the process with Atlanta United and Gabriel Heinze started way before he was hired. So I, I don't know if there was really, from the, the club's consideration, any look at anybody else seriously, and that's Stephen Glass or any other managers that Atlanta United could have considered. I, I think they, they got the guy they wanted in Gabriel Heinze, and they took time to get that deal done. Well, I guess that leads up to my next question is, um, you know, has Stephen himself spoken about, you know, where his ambitions might lie after getting that taste of being head coach? I haven't had that conversation with him directly. <laughs> um, I, I know when he was asked about the possibilities of getting the job in Atlanta full time last year, he spoke, I, I thought, very clearly about that is where his ambition lies, is being a first team manager. I think he has a, a good group around him that, again, have done a great job so far, but they haven't had a team of their own yet. You know, when you're a caretaker, it's not your team completely. The second team at any club, you can't just do everything you want to do. I think he's a guy who's incredibly thoughtful about the way the game is played. And any manager like that wants to be able to take those ideas and put them into practice. And his time here in Atlanta, you know, to go along with his time as a as a professional, which he's got so many different influences in his career. But his time here, I think, has, has proven to be really valuable for him. And, you know, again, instilling those principles of play that are so essential for any club. And I think if the opportunity came at Aberdeen, it would be something that would be beneficial in terms of making things very clear in terms of what kinds of players you're looking for in the market, what kinds of players you're trying to produce. You know, that's been something Atlanta's done, and, and Stephen had that time with the academy, then the second team. He's seen it with the first team with his involvement there too. How important the principles are from a very young age into the transfer market, but putting together a squad. So it would help clarify, I think, the direction for any club that, that Steven would take over going forward because he would be very defined in, in what he wants, what kinds of players he wants, 
and what principles he's looking for and characteristics he's looking for out of him. In terms of how well he's regarded within Atlanta, would it appeal to them for him maybe to make a move like the one that's being suggested here to a club within their sphere of influence that he can be monitored and then a couple of years down the line perhaps move up to fill that spot at Atlanta? It's an interesting question and it could absolutely come to play. I mean, he's highly regarded here because they were willing to make the the decision with Frank DeBoer to part ways when they did, which caught me by surprise. I think caught a lot of people by surprise because it was after the MLS's back tournament, it was only three games after coming back to play after the pandemic, you were missing uh, your top goal scorer and Joseph Martinez. Um, and the team had a successful 2019. They were a conference finalist, uh, top set, or top four team in the league, uh, second best team in the Eastern Conference during the regular season, won the U.S. Open Cup, won a, a Campiones Cup, which is like a Super Cup with the champions of Mexico and Club America. So they were so, I think, comfortable with Stephen Glass taking over at that point that they were willing to make a bold change. They didn't feel like things were heading in the right direction with Frank DeBoer, and they, they made the decision to part ways at that time, knowing that Stephen Glass could step in and not just, I think, keep the ship afloat, but try to right the ship. So, you know, he's highly regarded. The idea was always for him to, you know, no matter what, go back to Atlanta United 2 and continue to develop players for the first team and continue to put players into the first team. So if the idea would be potentially long-term since the, the relationship with Atlanta and Aberdeen, it would make sense just like it is for players. You know, I mean, you see it with players who play at that second division level really anywhere, but I think in the U S just the structure is a little different where you kind of outgrow it in a way. And you're not going to continue to grow as a player or as a manager in this case at that second division level. You need that next challenge. And sometimes you have to go into a different place to get that level of experience. And Atlanta at the player side has been willing to do that with moving players on when it's the right time. Uh, this season, they, they sent a couple guys out on loan to Argentine clubs because they weren't going to see as much time here. They weren't going to be as good of a fit. So, if the opportunity came, I think they would give him an incredible review. And if it goes well at Aberdeen, then, yeah, he's he's kind of part of the family in a way and, and could be considered down the road. Jason, thank you very much for your time today. Uh, that's a great insight into where Stephen's at now and where he might want to go in the future. Really enjoyed that. Thanks for having me on. Um, Steven's done great work here. Um, I'm glad to see him getting the consideration. And if he is the, the answer at Aberdeen, I think, you know, as you guys know, as a, as a player, what he did for the club, I think he would put in every waking hour to make the club a success. Um, I can't think of anybody who works harder than, than Steven Glass at his craft. So he would be a credit to any club he's with. Cameron, uh, Stephen is not that bootmakers odds make a blind bit of difference when it comes to this, but he is currently um, pretty clear favourite. Again, a lot of that is down purely to the Atlanta link, because I think without that, there's no chance it would be looking to the reserve side of an American American team to uh, to get our new manager, would we? 
No, and I think that, yeah, it's the Atlanta link and the Aberdeen link, and it's that, it's, he's a two for one in that sense. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's understandable why he's the early favourite, and I think that he's somebody that, given the relationship with Atlanta, it would probably be quite a seamless, uh, transition to get him into place in the sense of negotiations with his current employer. Um, I, I, and like you've said, you know, I think that, and as Martin was alluding to there, I think that we will see a lot more synergies between the way that we work and the way Atlanta United work to make the most of that relationship. It kind of makes sense. If you're setting up both parts of your business in the same way, then it means people can garner the experience that will best set them up to suit the, a similar type role, whether it be either side of the Atlantic, uh, meaning that hopefully both clubs can benefit from that approach. It means that when players come over and move between the two clubs as well, then naturally they're moving into a setup that's going to feel largely similar. How they tackle the fact that the leagues are very different in style of play and all that kind of stuff, we'll let them figure that stuff out. But I, I think it's interesting as well. I, I, I think that Stephen would probably be more likely to come in as a, a manager and a young, semi-inexperienced manager with a more senior director of football, if that's the route that we're going to go. I, I wonder what... I wonder what Stephen could bring as a director of football to a manager, to any manager other than someone going into their first job. I can't imagine an experienced manager and some of the other names that are being included would necessarily look to Stephen as being some kind of, uh, you know, beacon of direction or anything like that. So I think it's really important if it's whatever route we go down with that, the, the setup needs to be clear. The, the the roles and responsibilities need to be clear. The lines of demarcation between what the the sporting director does versus what the manager does, who selects what and where and when. And actually, you know, I'll bring it back home for me a little bit and bring it back to the NFL. But this is a model that we see in the NFL a lot between head coaches and general managers, where general managers will pick the players out of the draft. The general manager will do a lot of the signing of the, 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 the talent. And then it's up to the coach to make that talent win. Some of those relationships, the coaches will feed directly into what players come in, and some other ones, that isn't the case. So I think a lot of work needs to go in with setting the foundations of that for it to have any hope of being a success. I'll be honest, with me, the director of football thing, I just get Craig Levine twitches. Um, <laughs> and, you know, Ian Cathro and all that nonsense. So, you know, I think that you could look to all these great German examples, but you only need to look to Tynecastle for what is an omni-shambles way of just d- delivering it with absolute disastrous consequences. So, yeah, it's not all rosy in the director of football, haven't you? That's for sure. Well, you'd be unsurprised to hear that Derek also brought that one up. Um, interestingly, he, he put that down to difficulties in a cultural acceptance. I suppose if Celtic are going to pivot to this model at the same time, then it should um, it should open some eyes. I also spoke, uh, Martin, with Derek about David uh, Wagner, who, of course, is your shout for the manager. That's notwithstanding Tony Kumbwari, obviously, who I think we may just be a little bit too late on, unfortunately, for your sake. He, he thinks, to put it, to put it bluntly, that is pretty unrealistic. Um, and earlier on tonight, I heard um, one of the board of the Don Supporters Together suggest Eddie Howe on Radio Scotland. We're going to see quite a bit of this, aren't we? Names which are not going to be the next Aberdeen manager, um, but they sound quite nice. Of course, yeah. You're going to get, though, your people are going to want, attra- no, dare I say, attractive names. Um, you know, you know, like I said, I picked out picked out David Wagner because I thought it'd be an op- I know I thought it'd be a good option. Like I mentioned before, you know, I think he's seen as a bit a da- bit damaged goods because he's been obviously re- sacked from his last two jobs, sacked from the Schalke job, which is no, 
it is no, it's the biggest poison chalice in world football at the moment. Um, but you're going you're going to you're going to see that as well. I mean, Eddie Howe is another one where you know, if if Eddie Howe was homesick in Burnley, um, he's not going to want to come up to the northeast of Scotland, um, is he? No, I think that's no. So that's not good. That, I don't think that's going to happen. You've been to Burnley, right? <laughs> well, I've, been, I've been to Burnley, yeah, but no. If, if he was if he was homesick for the south coast of England, for, for, for Burnley, then if I'm being honest, I don't think a trip to Cadonas is going to make him feel at home. Um, so I can't see I can't see he, him being one. But yeah, you're going to get these you know, these uh, you know insane shouts. Um, I've seen you know, I've seen Paulo Di Canio thrown out there as well, um, which is another one that's just an absolute mental one that. You know, it might be entertaining, but I don't know. I mean, I don't know how many games we'll win, but you know, we'll at least have a laugh. Uh, but that, no, that's that's part of the fun, I suppose. It comes with all this when you're you know, looking you know, when we've got what we think will be, you know, a, at least a few weeks to throw about all these names and you know, look at all the look at all the bookie sites and see who's favourite and who isn't. Um, you're going to get you're going to get daft shouts as well, and yeah, and you're right, yeah, yeah. I think you're you are absolutely right as well, Richard. Um, time's running out. Um, you know, Tony Kumbari, his team is not not team are playing. They're playing PSG on the twentieth, um, and when they turn PSG over, then it's going to be it's going to be no no chance of him coming to Aberdeen. Heartbreaking, Martin. Heartbreaking. Um, <laughs> on on Sky earlier today, and one of the rare moments that I didn't get mentioned on that channel, um, they had an interview with very much the Ben Palmer of fifteen years ago, uh, Frank <laughs> Frank Kilfeather, who um, who suggested that uh, Dave Cormack would make a, a statement appointment. I thought that interesting because it, from from what I've seen. It, it is the sort of populist yet probably slightly misguided tack that might well appeal to Cormac based on what I've seen. Mm-hmm. You're either os- overestimating how old I am or <laughs> underestimating uh, how old Frank is, but uh, it was great to see him. I'm going to tell you, he's got the most magnificent hair in, in Scottish football and it's far better than mine and I'm only a fraction of his age. Um, Ah, you, you you would like to think that Cormac will, will take the appropriate counsel, and, and he won't just go for a glamorous name based on reputation. He'll he'll go for someone who fits this mould, what he wants of playing an attacking brand of football that he, he he can be convinced by the guy's CV rather than just his name. Um, but there, we've never had a, a Dave Cormack appointment yet. Um, I mean, when, if if it was Stuart Mill who was chairman, we, we'd be able to look at the history of his appointments, who it could possibly be, and if there was any kind of pattern. But we don't know what to expect from Cormack. Does he want a big name who might galvanise the fans and and get those extra season tickets, the seats on bums? I mean, we, we, we simply, simply, simply don't know. Um, so, so that's interesting. Um, but I, I do like to think that he'll, he'll take, the, he'll speak to the appropriate people, get feedback of a team around him, sort of saying that, that this, this is the the man or indeed woman who who, who needs to take us forward. I don't think we're quite ready for Sherry Longy to get the job. Um, but uh, sorry, that uh, reference will only apply to anybody um, at least forty-five years old. Um, just again on the relationship between Cormac and, and the, well, the ex-manager and any future manager, the um, motley crew of failed ex-managers on Sports Sound earlier on today went very big on that. Went very big on the fact that this was, you know, Cormac wanting his own man in charge. I find that 
little bit hard to take it face value, Cameron, because, I mean, Cormac's been on the board since 2017. It was Cormac who went to Florida when Sunderland were sniffing about and persuaded him to stay. And, you know, if you believe everything that's been written, handed him essentially that uh, very large new contract. So there was a long-term relationship there. It's not quite as simple as saying that, you know, this has happened because a new guy wants his own man in. Yeah, I think if that was the case, we would have seen it done before now. Uh, the flip to that is, if Stuart Milne was still in charge, Derek McInnes would have got to the summer. I think that's a definite, though. Um, but yeah, in the context of this, I think if you look at the what Cormac's done, he's not necessarily... Or, right, OK, he's he's been very vocal, he's been very front and centre, he's very much wanting to get his opinion across, he's wanting to be open and transparent... Uh, and he's he's obviously invested a lot of money. He's very heavily invested in the community and stuff like that, which is brilliant. Does he want his own man? I think now he's got the opportunity to put his own man in. Yes, he will. I don't think that was a driver for the the the, the decision. I don't think that was a driver at all because it would have been very easy for him to have done that earlier in this process. He could have done it really early and called it a cost-cutting exercise or whatever, but he didn't. Um, and I think that he's given it as long as he can. Um, something's happened, I think, behind the scenes, as we were alluding to earlier, that's brought this to a head sooner than the summer. And ultimately, the decision's made now. But I, I think that's slightly harsh on Cormac. I think what will be interesting for me is what managers will want to work for a chairman that, has, that is as vocal and as out in front as Cormac is. You know, I wonder whether that will have an impact on the names that he can attract to the club. Whether there is a big name manager who likes to be front and centre that might feel slightly threatened by another big ego and personality within the club. And I mean that as no criticism to Cormac, but he is a much bigger ego and personality than Stuart Milne was. Um, I think that will be an interesting dynamic and I think that where it will be fascinating to watch now is when he does bring his own person in, how does he treat them? What sort of contract does he give them? Is it going to be a, a 12-month deal to prove themselves? Is he going to back himself up? And, you know, are we going to see a, someone come in on a four-year deal right away? Um, you know, I, I think there's a lot of things will will become... Uh, yeah, things will come to light about what we're going to get from Cormac as a, as a chairman on a managerial side based upon this appointment alone. So I think that is where it becomes very, very interesting. Um, the name I'm going to chuck out, incidentally, as well, that uh, if we're doing the crazy ones, is um, Mark Van Bommel. Uh, he's been out of work for a PSG since 2019, so I'm going Van Bommel. I think bring some of that Dutch, you know, the total football. We'll go back to that. Let's bring it in, uh, and he can come and win the, the Premiership with Aberdeen. Bring it on. Fair enough. Given that somebody got one of their mates on the Skybet uh, odds earlier today, uh, it's, uh, it's quite likely that this one mention on this uh, insignificant little podcast will see him move into second favourite. Ben, you've obviously spent um, a lot more time conversing with Derek McInnes and, and some time, no doubt, in Dave Cormack's company, whether online or otherwise. Um, what impression did you get of their relationship? Of the relationship... Certainly not as tight as um, McInnes' relationship was with Stuart Milnes, but you've got to take everything we said at face value, and every time that you ask them about their relationship, their dynamic, working relationship, personal relationship, they insisted that that, that it was good, it was strong, and that we, we both saw the... The same way forward for the club, and you've got to you've got to accept that that is that is truly how we feel. Um, 
but uh, look, I, I mean, I do kind of think that Cormac wants to stamp a bit of a forty here and, and get his own man. But in terms of relationship, um, I, th- I think you've just got to take what they say. Um, uh, and they always stress whenever you spoke to them, and, and it did come up more than once. I mean, the amount of sort of difficulties has been over the last twelve months, and, and asking about how you speak to the chairman. Um, do you speak to the chairman often? And McInnes always said that he did. Um, and, and you've got to respect that, that they, they had a, a good working relationship and a good, and a good personal relationship. Okay, well, just to close this podcast off, um, you know, at the risk of, uh, was it misty-eyed, someone said earlier? At the risk of going misty-eyed over it, um, I just thought we'd ask uh, Cameron and Martin for uh, the, the one moment that uh, they'll remember from the Derek McInnes time. Uh, so, uh, Martin, yourself first. Uh, the, 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 well, the first one I think really um, has to be the, the semi-final at Tynecastle, um, the 4 0 win against St Johnston. At that point, that was as, as well as I'd remembered an Aberdeen team playing um, for quite some time. Just what a, what a great afternoon, you know, um, brilliant atmosphere. When you follow that, following that game up, it really felt like this was a team that w- was going somewhere. It was a st- it was the start of it was the start of some really good times and that's for me that really seems to be like the 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 starting point where I think that the Aberdeen the Aberdeen support really started to believe um, in the in the in the manager and really follow and I think we kind of we kind of unified as, as a support then as well. Come on yourself. So for me, it's actually the European victory away to Groningen. Um, which I thought was uh, an absolutely brilliant result. The put Aberdeen back, mixing it up with you know top teams from top footballing countries. Um, I think that obviously you know the League Cup wins a massive one, and you can't take that away. But I thought that result showed so much character going away from home um, and, and getting a really good win there. I, I remember at the time thinking, "Geez," especially as how close that was to us being utterly pish. Um, you know, I think the significance of it, the significance of that at that time was huge, and it it kind of made you go, oh, God, that's a great, and it kind of brought back that this is what we should be feeling, this is what we should be celebrating, and then you have to kind of go, no, 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 don't become one of those guys, don't take it for granted, enjoy it for what it is, uh, and I thought it was a great result. Yes, um, there were there were some good European results. Unfortunately, we're miles away from the business end of any tournament, such as the the qualifying structure these days in Scotland's place and that. And of course, the the first year that uh, we actually have a a beneficial qualifying system, we are probably going to miss out, uh, which is quite frustrating. Uh, for myself, um, I'm going to take it upon myself to to have the last word here. But for me, it was um, it was actually a, a later. Moment. It was um, winning that League Cup semi-final at Hamden um, against them. Lewis Ferguson's goal uh, and just that feeling of walking out of Hamden, being ten feet tall, having turned over one of those sides on their own backyard. Arguably, it didn't happen often enough. We still had more than our share of um, insipid semi-final displays, insipid final displays. That was something that, despite the promise of that St Johnston game wasn't left behind uh, from previous managers. Coming out of that ground, a feeling that we hadn't really had since 1995 of beating one of them at Hamden. So we didn't win enough under McInnes. That's obviously always the accusation to win it and one trophy in eight years. And for a club as a whole, and for the players, 
football is about winning, whether it's winning games or ultimately winning trophies. But for fans, I, I really truly believe that what you're going to look back as fans is moments, a collection of moments. And, and I do think that, you know, over the past eight years, we did have more in our fair share, partly based on the fact, and that's partly recency bias, and it's also partly based on the fact that the 20 years before that were some of the most wretched we've ever had in our history. So obviously anything after that is going to seem very good by comparison. But I thank him for that. I thank the two of them for that. Doesn't mean to say that it was the wrong decision. I think both of those things can still be true. Overall, he did a good, solid job as Aberdeen manager, but it was the right time to change. Anyway, that's been our podcast tonight. Our thanks to Jason Longshaw and to Derek Gray for joining us. To Cameron Hobbs. Cameron, thank you. Thank you for having me. To Ben Palmer. Thank you, Ben. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. If you're going to go full Frank Gilfeather, obviously you have to practice falling off a bench. You, you do know this. <laughs> aye, aye. Okay. And to Martin Clunes, who's fallen off many a bench in his time. <laughs> Thanks very much, Richard. We'll be back uh, after the Dundee United game in about 10 days' time. When who knows, Aberdeen might have a new man in the hot seat. Until then, come on you Reds.